I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Habakkuk in the Minor Prophets. I don't know about you, I've been enjoying this section of going through uh, the Minor Prophets. I think it's a section that many of us are less familiar with uh, than other parts of Scripture. But yet these Minor Prophets, uh, and, and the term minor really is minor only in terms of their length, as, a pair, as opposed to Isaiah and Jeremiah uh, that are in the 50s and 60s chapters. I think the longest of the minor prophets is somewhere around 14, but their, their message is not minor in any way. Uh, and so we want to look this morning at the book of Habakkuk, which I think has some really profound applications to our contemporary situation. Have you ever had a really frank and open conversation with God? Now, I'm not talking about the kind of theologically correct and publicly acceptable kind of conversation. It's more the kind of conversation that's real, that's unscripted, that's unfiltered, kind of like a parent might have when they walk around the corner to find their child finger painting on the new carpet that was just put in. Or maybe they open a child's bedroom door to find him tying his sibling to a chair. Or maybe for you kids, it's if you were to walk into your room and find your younger sibling digging through your stuff or messing with that one thing that you've told them over and over that they better not touch. It's the kind of conversation that usually sounds something or starts something like, what are you doing? Or what in the world were you thinking? Have you ever had that kind of a conversation with God? Oftentimes I think we don't. I think we're scared to. Because we know, at least not out loud, we wouldn't have that conversation. We might think it in our minds, which God knows all of our thoughts. But we, we have come to know or to believe that you know, we're not supposed to question God, His wisdom, His plan, His working. But the truth is that there are times in our lives where God's working is a mystery to us. And trusting Him can be particularly difficult, especially when we don't understand what He's doing or we don't like the impacts that God's working is having in our own lives. And so, when God seems to do exactly the opposite of what we would choose or what we would anticipate, though we know we should trust Him, oftentimes that is something that's very hard to do. And this is the kind of situation that Habakkuk found himself in. And boy, he had a couple of questions for God. In fact, the book reads much like Psalm 73 that Pastor Thomas read for us just a few minutes ago, and many of the other psalms where the psalmists openly pour out their struggles, their their hearts to God, and they ask pertinent questions like, why, how long, and how can you do that? But Habakkuk is not a book about doubt. Instead, it's a book about faith. It's a book that teaches us to rest in the character of God even when everything around us seems to be going wrong. 
Habakkuk teaches us that having faith does not mean that we never question God, but rather that faith informs how we question God with an unshakable trust in his character and in remembrance of his past works. Now before we jump right into the text of Habakkuk, I want us to look a little bit at the historical situation of Habakkuk. Sorry, we're going the wrong way here. There we go. We know very little about Habakkuk himself. The only two times his name is mentioned is at the beginning of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 3 of the book that bears his name. We do know that in both chapter 1 and verse 1, as well as chapter 3 and verse 1, he is simply described as Habakkuk the prophet. That's about as much detail as the scripture tells us about him. It also seems clear from chapter 3 that he was familiar with music, as it seems like chapter 3 was his own composition, his own song that he wrote in response to, to this dialogue that he has with God. Now, as we look at the events of Habakkuk, it seems that he lived and ministered around the same time as Jeremiah and Zephaniah. This was during Judah's final decline. This was when the situation in Judah was the worst it was going to get, and going all the way down to the end. By this time, The northern kingdom of Israel had already been swept away by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians, you'll remember, had come right to the door of Jerusalem during the time of King Hezekiah. And they were parked right at the door until the Lord destroyed 185,000 Assyrian soldiers overnight and saved Jerusalem in that way. And that was during as we mentioned, the reign of King Hezekiah, who was a godly king. After King Hezekiah, there was another spiritual and moral decline until the time of Josiah, who was the last godly king of Judah. And it's likely that Habakkuk ministered and and served shortly after the time of King Josiah. And we'll see the way he describes the situation. But let's look at what 2 Chronicles says. As the nation of Judah is going into decline, at the end of 2 Chronicles in chapter 36, verses 14 to 17, listen to the description that is given of the nation of Judah. All of the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. This was the situation that Habakkuk lived in. You can see here on the map where Judah and Jerusalem is right there along the coast. You have Egypt down to the southwest. You have Assyria and Babylonia. So Egypt on one side, Assyria, Babylonia on the other, and Israel and Judah were kind of sandwiched in the middle. And there was this constant 
grappling for power. First, the nation of Assyria was the the power of the day. They came and swept away the northern kingdom. But then in God's providence, Assyria was defeated, was destroyed. And we heard about that as we looked at the prophecies of Jonah and of Nahum. And then the Babylonians and the Medes joined together, formed a coalition, coalition. They destroyed Assyria. And then Babylon kind of took the, the head of the spear. And they came all the way down and would, would begin to oppress and ultimately destroy Judah. So Habakkuk ministered at this time. And in this kind of a situation. So what he is seeing is he is seeing the decline, the moral and spiritual decline in his own nation. And he is also seeing other surrounding nations that are even worse. And rather than themselves being destroyed, they are are seeming to grow and to flourish. Sounds much like Psalm 73 that we just read. The nation, the wicked, are the ones who seem to be flourishing. And so in the midst of this situation, Habakkuk cries out to God. And the book of Habakkuk is somewhat of an anomaly among the prophets. Many of the books of the prophets, even Isaiah and Jeremiah, when you read them, it will start off with something like this. The word of the Lord came to the prophet, and they give the prophet's name. But the book of Habakkuk is very different. If you look at the very first verse, it just says this, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. And then, rather than God addressing the prophet, Habakkuk begins with the prophet addressing God. He's crying out to God because of everything that he's seeing around him. And maybe you found yourself in a similar situation. As we look at the godlessness in our own nation, as we look at the godlessness around us in our world, our hearts cry out to God. Our hearts want to ask God, what is happening and how long is this going on? And this is exactly what Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk, is all about. So as we look at the book of Habakkuk, there's really five sections in this book. Some of them are very short, some of them are much longer. In the first section from chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, we see Habakkuk's question. He asks a question to God, and then God gives him a response from verse 5 down to verse 11. Then at the end of the chapter, Habakkuk will give a reaction to God's response and, and ask a question... God will again respond to him. So this book is very much a dialogue between God and his prophet. And then the last section is this song, this psalm of faith that Habakkuk composes in response to his dialogue with God. So let's look into uh, the passage. Obviously, because of time, we're not going to be able to spend an extensive amount of time delving into each verse and each detail, but we do want to take an overview and look into this book so we can understand what the book of Habakkuk was about in its original context, and then we want to draw out a number of applications for us in our day and age. First of all, let's look at Habakkuk's question. We'll read from verses 2 down to verse 4. 
Habakkuk says this to the Lord, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. As Habakkuk looks, I believe, at what is happening in his own nation, in the nation of Judah, he calls out to God. And it seems that God is silent. So Habakkuk's question then is, God, how long are you going to tolerate all of this violence and all of this injustice? Now, why does Habakkuk ask this question? He asks this question because he knows the character of God. And we'll see this later when he says, you are of pure eyes to behold evil, to look at evil. So if your eyes are so pure that you can't look at evil, how can you just allow this to go on? Does it mean that God has turned his back, that he's turned away? Does it mean that he's just ignoring everything that's going on? And Habakkuk also asks a second question in this. He says, why are you idle? Why is God idle and just allowing evil to continue unchecked? Look again at verse 3. He says, why do you make me see iniquity and you look idly at wrong? Now at times, it may seem, even in our own lives, we know theologically, yes, God is aware. He sees all things. He's omniscient. He knows all things. But Habakkuk says, okay, you see it, but why do you just look at it idly? You just, you see it and you fold your arms and you do nothing. How can this happen? And I think before we jump too quickly to judge or to condemn Habakkuk, I think we should examine our own hearts because I believe that many times, even whether we're looking at the world around us, whether we're looking at our own nation or even looking in our own personal lives and we see things that aren't the way we would imagine they should be. It's easy for us to formulate these own questions in our mind. God, how long? God, why? God, how can you allow this? And God graciously gives a response to his prophet Habakkuk. Let's look from verse 5 down to verse 11. This is God speaking, and he says this, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence. They all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. 
At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Now as I read this, part of me thinks, you know, how is God's response supposed to make Habakkuk feel any better? Have you ever had one of those questions where you ask the question and you get the answer and you're like, I wish I hadn't even asked the question. Because that's even worse. So here Habakkuk is saying, okay God, look at all this violence, look at all this injustice among your people, how long are you going to let this go on? And God says, okay, don't worry about it. I'm raising up a people who are even worse than these people, and they're going to come in and they're going to wipe these people out. How does that solve the problem? It seems to be going in the worst direction, the opposite direction. But look at what God says. In verse 5, he says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. Think what God is saying to Habakkuk here is, listen, I am at work in ways that you can't always see or understand. And Habakkuk just is baffled by this response because, number one, yes, he couldn't see it, but then when God begins to give the description of this people, look at what he, look at what he says about them. Verse 6, he says, They march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Isn't that what Habakkuk was just complaining about was happening in Judah? This violence, this oppression. Verse 7, he says, They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. In other words, they make their own justice. They make their own rules. Rather than submitting to the laws of God, they're making up the rules as they go and enforcing that on other people. They're swift, they're violent. Verse 9, they come for violence. They gather captives like sand. Imagine you go to the beach and you take a bucket and just fill it up. Now count all those grains of sand. They're just gathering up captives as they're sweeping through, as they're destroying, as they're pillaging. They're arrogant. Verse 10, they scoff, they mock, they laugh at anything that would oppose them. And verse 11 says, their own might is their God. And while this seems completely opposite, not only to what Habakkuk would understand that God would do, but even opposite of God's character, God assures Habakkuk that, listen, I am at work. I'm not just sitting idly by like you might imagine. But I am at work, and I'm working in ways that you can't always see and in ways that you won't always understand. But, he says, and as we know of his character, I will always punish sin. And so this is where Habakkuk, again, is going now to react to God's explanation 
And he is going to react to that, and and really he's kind of going to reformulate some of his same questions. So let's look at verse 12. He says, Are you not from everlasting? O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. So we see here, Habakkuk now, he's wrestling. He's trying to reconcile what he knows of the character of God with what he sees going on and what he hears is going to happen. And so he begins to rehearse the character of God. He says that he is eternal. He's everlasting. He's outside of time and of space. He calls him holy, my God and my holy one speaks to the truth of God being righteous and set apart from sin. He also refers to him as a faithful covenant God. Because in the covenant that God established with his people, he promised them that if they would not follow him, if they would disobey him, he would bring other nations to judge them. So Habakkuk is seeing God's faithfulness. And also when he says, we shall not die, this again goes back to the idea of God's faithfulness. He he is a God who keeps his covenant with his people. And he also refers to him as sovereign. Because he said, you have established them. You have ordained them. This is much the same way as the passage we opened with this morning from Daniel chapter 2, when it says that God sets up and puts down kings. And I love the passage as well in Daniel chapter 4. If you'll hold your finger here in Habakkuk and flip over to Daniel chapter 4, this is one of my favorite passages of the Old Testament. The story of Nebuchadnezzar All the way at the end of Daniel chapter 4, in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar gives this testimony. He's writing this as in a letter, giving this story of everything that happened to him. And at the end of verse of the story, in Daniel chapter 4, in verse 34, Nebuchadnezzar writes this. He says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and He does according to His will among the hosts of heaven." And among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven 
For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So here is Habakkuk recognizing all of these things about God. All of these things about his character, but yet he is wrestling and trying to understand how is a God who is like this, how does that work with these actions that I'm seeing and that are being told to me? Have you ever been in a situation like Habakkuk? Have you ever wrestled with what you know to be true about God, what Scripture tells us about God, but yet it's hard to see that in your life or in your nation or in the world around us? And Habakkuk has this very frank and open conversation with the Lord about what he is doing. And again, he will ask the question, he will come back to these questions, how can a holy God allow those who are even more wicked to oppress others? Let's go back to Habakkuk and pick up in verse 13. Habakkuk says this, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors? So again, he comes back to this question. Why are you just sitting there and not doing anything when you see this happen? Why remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You made mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He, and this being the wicked, brings all of them up with his hook, with a hook. He drags them out with his net, gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? So again, he's going back to these two questions. Why are you sitting idly by, and how long is this going to go on? Is this just going to keep going on forever? So though Habakkuk is firmly rooted in the character of God, he's still wrestling and trying to understand, how do I justify these two realities? And once again, God is going to respond to him. But look at what Habakkuk says at the beginning of chapter 2. And I think this is so important to us. He says this, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So again, he has this relationship with God where he's able to ask these frank and open questions And after he asks his questions and re-asks them, now he says, okay, I'm going to come, I'm going to go, and I'm going to sit, and I'm going to wait for this response from the Lord. I'm going to see what he's going to say to me. And so now we're going to go to the fourth section, which is God's response, his second response to Habakkuk. And one of the things that we will see in this is that God is saying that my timing, though it may seem slow to you, is always perfect 
and it will not fail. Let's pick up the reading in Habakkuk 2 and verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. I think the idea that, that we're getting here is, is like we would say in our, in our modern day, put it on a billboard. A big billboard so somebody driving down the interstate at 65 miles an hour can read it plainly. It's going to be, write this down, make it clear, because look at what he says. This is going to happen. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It surely will come. It will not delay. So God is giving Habakkuk a preface. Before he gives him the answer, he's reassuring him and saying, listen, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen, but make sure we're clear on this. This is going to happen. And even if it seems like I'm slow and I'm idle and I'm doing nothing, understand, I'm letting you know ahead of time, this is going to come. And so even though it may seem like a long time, wait for it. Because it's definitely, it will come. It will arrive. And then God goes on to describe the wickedness of this nation but he, he describes the difference between the righteous and the wicked in terms of faith. Look at verse 4. Here he is now speaking about the wicked. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. He describes the soul of the wicked as one who is puffed up. One who is arrogant, who is self-reliant. And so really, the difference that God is trying to explain to Habakkuk here is that the difference between someone who is righteous and someone who is wicked is not just a matter of keeping the law, but it's, it's a relationship of faith with God. They are either relying on themselves or they are relying on God. That is the essence of faith. So then God goes on to describe, again, what is going to come on this wicked nation Babylon that he will use. And we're going to read down through the end of the chapter and look at five different woes that are going to be pronounced upon this nation. And he starts in verse 5. He says, Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. Now there's a, there's a little bit of a discrepancy in some different uh, translations. This, this phrase where it says wine is a traitor can also be translated with the idea of wealth is deceitful. And I think that seems to flow along with, with what is going on because he describes Babylon as this nation who is just rolling through, rolling across the earth, just sweeping up everyone, taking captive plundering, accumulating wealth, but he says their wealth is deceitful. Like an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he never has enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. But shall not 
all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, and this is where we get into the section that pronounces the five woes that are on this wicked nation. The first one is in verses 5 through 8, and it's a woe to those who make themselves wealthy by theft and by extortion. Let's continue reading in verse 6. He says, Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnants of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The second woe has to do with those who are seeking their own security through unjust gain. Let's look at verses 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork will respond. So again, God is telling Habakkuk, this is what is happening to a nation who has these kind of characteristics, who try to make themselves wealthy by theft, by extortion, by violence and oppression. To those who are trying to seek their own security by unjustly removing it from others. The third woe is those who make profit by violence and injustice. Verses 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labor merely for fire? And nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. I want us to look a little bit more in depth at this section. Especially verses 13 and 14. Because God tells Habakkuk that all of these nations, in all their warring, in all their plundering, in all their seeking to amass uh, this wealth and this riches and security for themselves, God says, all of that, all of that labor is simply meant to be thrown into the fire. It's worthless. All of, the, all of the things that nations and people toil for, apart from God, through their own strength and their own plans, their own wealth and their own might, is destined simply to be destroyed. It cannot last. Why? Why will those things not last? Because the one thing that is lasting is the kingdom that is ruled by God. And he says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is the one thing that is important, the one thing that is lasting. So all of these nations, Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and other surrounding nations, 
that are laboring and toiling for their own honor, for their own wealth, God says, it will all come to nothing. Because all of them, just as we read about Nebuchadnezzar, all of them will come to recognize and to honor God himself, the ruler of the one true kingdom. So all of these things that they're trying to build, God says to Habakkuk, it's going to come to nothing. And the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. We go on to the fourth woe in verses 15 to 17. And this is a woe to those nations who will abuse and dishonor others for their own pleasure. Hear what he says in verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and the violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. So again, a woe, just just another description of this wicked nation. A description of their wickedness and, and how God is going to bring that to an end. What they are seeking to build is, he says, their own glory is going to become their shame. And then the final woe we read in verse 18 to 20. This is a woe to those who worship a creation rather than the Creator. Look with me at verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So again, this, just as God had described to Habakkuk how this nation, they trust in their own strength, in their own might, in their own idols, their gods that they have fabricated for themselves, God again is showing the folly of this. And especially in the last three woes, we see particularly how God is setting apart all of human effort and how it will fail in comparison to the glory of God. How all of the, the things, the glory and the honor that men work for themselves, they, they don't realize that it will be turned around for their own shame. So God in this section is giving Habakkuk a response. He is telling them, yes, I, I, un, I see the violence and the injustice in Judah. Am I, and I'm going to deal with that. And I'm going to use an even worse nation, Babylon, as my instrument of judgment for Judah. But know that I'm also going to judge this same nation, Babylon, for all of their wickedness. And as a way of answering Habakkuk's question of why and how long, 
God tells him, this is what I am doing. And even though, because I am outside of time and space, even though my plan to you may seem slow, even though my plan to you may seem like I'm, I'm sitting here idly doing nothing, I'm at work in ways you can't see and in ways you won't understand. But know that I am at work for my own honor and my own glory. Now, how is Habakkuk going to respond? In chapter 3, we read his final response, which is in the form of a psalm or a prayer. I call it a psalm of faith. In the midst of fear, in the midst of confusion, Habakkuk pens this beautiful song to express his faith in God. Let's read through this passage. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigiono, which I asked Pastor Ben, because he's you know our music guy. I said, what is that? He said, nobody really knows. <laughs> it's some sort of a musical term. But he says this in verse 2. O oh Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O oh Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And what Habakkuk is saying here is this. He's, he's indicating submission to God's plan. He says, Lord, I've heard the report of you. I've heard all the stories, all that you did for the nation, the ways in which you worked for our salvation, for our preservation, even in the face of the worst odds and in the, the worst possible scenarios. God, you always came through. And so he says, in the midst of the years, revive that. Bring that work back. Make it known. And in wrath, remember mercy. He's submitting to God's plan while pleading for his mercy to the nation. But then he's going to go, and from verse 3 all the way down to 15, he's going to rehearse many of these stories that he heard, the workings of God. Look at what he says. God came from Teman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. 
The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You thrust the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. And then finally, Habakkuk goes on to reaffirm his faith in God's character. Let's look at these last few verses. Habakkuk says this, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. In the few moments that we have left, I want us to to take away a few applications. Because we've come to understand what this dialogue is between God and Habakkuk. But it's important that we understand as well, how does this small book, tucked into the middle of the minor prophets, how does this apply to us in our day? So let's look at five applications from Habakkuk. First of all, and you can see the reference, the verses. We won't go back and read all of these verses. But I want us to see, number one, that God's working is bigger than our own little world and our own personal concerns. It can be very easy for us to become focused on what is going on in my life or what is going on in our state, in our nation But we must remember that God is working on a global and a universal scale. And though at times God may seem silent and indifferent to our concerns, He is always aware and He is always at work and often it's in ways that we cannot understand and in ways that we don't see. But when we cry out to God, And it seems that he is silent. Let us never make the mistake of thinking that means he is uncaring, that he does not see, or that he does not know. God is always at work, and in greater ways and on a greater scale than we could ever imagine. The second application is this, coming from verses 12 and 13 of chapter 1. Habakkuk teaches us to ask questions of God without judging his character. I think it's important for us to understand that faith in God does not mean that we have a full understanding of everything that God is doing. And faith in God also does not mean that there's an absence of questions, that we'll never, like Habakkuk, ask questions like, why and how long? 
And how can this happen? But true faith often wrestles with God's character and with his working in the world. And sometimes we might think of faith as just this blind acceptance. Like I'm just going to say, okay, I have faith. I don't... That doesn't mean faith doesn't seek to understand. We can ask questions of God. We should have open conversation with God. Real, true dialogue as Habakkuk did. But yet we always come back to rest in the character of God. The third application is this. Is that God controls the timing of all things. And he will act in his way and at his appointed time. This is the essence of faith. And I think this is what Habakkuk shows us so beautifully, is that we bring God our yet unsolved problems, and we say to him, look, why and and how long, and I don't understand this, but yet I'm going to trust you. I'm going to give you these questions in my heart and in my mind, but I'm going to trust you. And I'm going to trust that you're going to work in your way and your time and not my way and my time. And so many times in my own wrestlings with God, part of my wrestling is, God, why aren't you doing this now? I think this would be a great time to act. Don't you? And God gently reminds me that he understands the timing and the perfect time to act. And it's often not the time that I think. There's a great example of this in the New Testament, and that's Jesus in Gethsemane. When he prayed to the Father. As he was facing the crucifixion, and he said, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me but yet not my will, but your will be done. And Peter will come back to that and say in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, that we are to cast all our cares upon him because he cares for us. And as we come to know God's character, it allows us to rest in him and to have faith. The fourth application is this. In difficult times, We have one of two choices. We can either choose to be functionally godless, which means we're being puffed up and relying on our own wisdom and plans, our own wealth and might, or we can choose to be righteous and to live by faith. So when we face difficult situations, when we face questions to which we cannot formulate answers, We can either be godless, like the Babylonians, and rely on ourselves, we'll make our own plans, we'll rely on our own wisdom, we'll build up our honor through our own wealth and our own might, or we can do as Habakkuk learned, to trust in God and in his character. And you have there three references, Romans 1.17, Galatians 3.11, Hebrews 10.38, All three of those passages are references to Habakkuk chapter 2. They quote Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says, The just will live by 
faith. And this is how we demonstrate a righteousness that comes from God is as we have faith in Him. And then our final application is this. And this is from the last verses of Habakkuk. Despite what we might feel inside us, you see in verse 16 how Habakkuk talks about his feelings and how his body trembles and his lips quiver and rottenness enters into his bone and his legs tremble beneath him. So despite what we might feel inside and despite the circumstances around us, which he talks about in verse 17, we need to learn in faith to quietly wait for God to work while we rejoice in his character and in his control of all things. And that's awful easy to say. But it's awfully difficult to live out when we are faced with the crushing weight of these difficult situations. And this is where the book of Habakkuk becomes so pertinent and so personal to us. Because Habakkuk wasn't just examining these things in theory. He was living in the middle of them. And yet, while he lived in the middle of them, and while he heard what was even worse news than what he initially went to God for, he learned to live in faith in reliance on the character of God. And this is, again, the message of Habakkuk. He teaches us that having faith does not mean that we never question God. But faith informs how we question God with an unshakable trust in his character and a remembrance of his past works. So as we consider the message of the book of Habakkuk, may God give us the grace to live with this kind of faith even in the middle of whatever international, national, or personal situation we're dealing with, might we have faith in God in the same way that Habakkuk did. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we are grateful to you for this book of Scripture that we have had a chance to examine this morning. We are grateful for the way that we learn to trust you no matter how dark and difficult the situation is. And Lord, you know what each person in this room is walking through. And you know what your work is in the future for them. So God, I ask that you will give us the grace to have this kind of faith that we have seen demonstrated in the book of Habakkuk. That despite all that we might feel within us, despite all that goes on around us, might we in faith submit to you and to your plan, knowing your character and knowing that you are in control of all things. May we do this, Lord, for your glory and that we might honor you among those around us. We ask this for the glory and honor of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.